should have got a little slip, but it's just really to summarise the passages I want to try and take you through in the course of the weekend and uh, the various headings that uh, we'll hang our thoughts on as we look at this, uh, these passages from God's Word. First of all, thank, uh, I want to thank the, uh, the elders, deacons, for this invitation to come and speak at your weekend. Um, kind of a real privilege and honour to come amongst you and to uh, bring God's Word to you and to share with you in the course of this weekend. We've been praying for this weekend. Uh, in our home and we trust that we know God's uh, blessing uh, together Uh, let's read a little part of God's word Uh, it's Romans chapter 8 uh, verse 18 and 25 we'll read first of all this is God's word for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, the theme of uh, the addresses I want to give uh, this weekend are living in a broken world. And that's really what this part of Romans chapter 8 is about. It's to to give us help uh, that we might live rightly in our broken world. Now, I'm not sure if you've realised this about coming to White Park Bay. It is a very, very dangerous place to come to. That probably never dawned on you. Uh, When you came in here this morning and looked out the window... All that you thought was how beautiful it is. And that's a good thought. But it's also actually a very dangerous place to be. And the danger is that when we look out there and see the wonder of God's creation, and we worship and adore him for it, that we can get this little sense that this is paradise. That this is perfect. It's actually a very dangerous thing to come to a church conference weekend as well. Uh, because we meet with those that we know and we love. Uh, we see the children playing together and having fun together. We enjoy conversation together. And we think, this is just like a little bit of heaven. And the danger is, those are, I'm not despising those things. Those are good things and to, to give thanks for. But the danger is that we begin to think we've arrived in God's paradise. Um, Hopefully by the end of the weekend, I'll have reminded you, we're not yet in God's paradise uh, and we need help to live. When you look out, it doesn't look like a very broken world out there. But if you went down into the sea actually and got your toe nipped by a crab, boys and girls, you would realise it's not the world that God meant it to be. So it's it's a beautiful world. It's a very broken world. Um, This chapter of Romans 8, I I wanted to give a little bit of background first of all to Romans chapter 8 so you'll see where you are in this book in case it's a book you're not that familiar with. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is like one of those wonderful mountain peaks of the Bible. Uh, it's one of the white park bays of the Bible, if you like. It's just a beautiful uh, chapter. Uh, one writer said it's like a glistening gemstone. And if it's not a, a chapter of the Bible that you're familiar with, do get familiar with it. It'd be a good chapter to actually try and memorize as well. There are wonderful truths in it. Apostle Paul wrote this book. He was writing, obviously, as the title of the book says, Romans. He was writing to Christians who lived in Rome. And their world was very broken. And he was writing to help them how to live in a broken world. Uh, He writes to them with two purposes in mind when he's writing this book, actually. He's writing to stir them up to greater uh, zeal to serving God and to sharing the gospel. And he was writing also to heal some fractures that there were in the congregations in Rome. I'm not going into the details of those this morning. And what he does to help them to live together in harmony, and what he does to help them to stir them up to evangelism, is to give them a summary of the gospel. 
So now you know what Romans is about. Romans is just simply, these 16 chapters are a summary of the gospel. Let me take you up to where we are in Romans uh, chapter 8. In chapters 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul is just setting out uh, the basic point that we need the good news about Jesus. And for three chapters he bangs out the message that by nature we're all sinners under God's wrath and we need rescued. From chapter 3 verse 21 through to chapter 5 verse 21 the Apostle Paul actually explains how God uh, in his great love for sinners uh, set about to rescue sinners. He sent the Son Jesus Christ to take the wrath that we deserved. Uh, that's what he does right from chapter 321 to 521. He makes it clear that the gospel he's presenting to the Romans isn't some new thing. It takes him to the life of Abraham, the life of David. Say, this is what these men were looking forward to. When you come to chapter 6 of Romans, right through to the end of chapter 8 of Romans, Paul is then setting out for the Christians at Rome all the benefits, all the blessings that come uh, to a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who loves Jesus Christ. So can you see the picture building up? Chapters 1 to 3, he shows us the need of the gospel. In chapters uh, 3.21 to 5.21, he tells us what the gospel is, what Jesus did on the cross, and it's not new. And in chapter 6 uh, to the end of chapter 8, Paul is saying there are loads of benefits of the gospel. What he does in chapter 6 and 7 is to tell us the benefits, if you like, from a negative slant. Uh, when you're a Christian you're freed from the uh, relentless rule keeping sort of life you're freed from sin you're freed from death and then when you come to chapter 8 Paul's still spelling out the benefits of the gospel and he's now beginning to to spell them out from a positive angle these are the wonderful things that we have and if you look just 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 scan your eye down chapter 8 I'm not sure if you you know that little device on on a computer called Wordle um, it's, uh, you type in a chapter of the Bible or a phrase and it makes a diagram of it if you put all of the text of Romans chapter 8 into Wordle uh, what it does it just puts all, the, all the, the words on your computer screen and the words that are used most often in the passage become the biggest words uh, it's the one that stands out as the largest well look down chapter 8 just do it now and there's one word well it's two words actually but it's the same person uh, that appears over and over and over in chapter 8. And that's a way that you know what a chapter of the Bible is about. Well, it's God, it's God the Holy Spirit. He is mentioned over and over and over. I can't remember just exactly how many times he's mentioned this chapter. But he's mentioned more in this chapter than in any other part of the book of Romans. So what Paul's doing here in chapter 8, he's explaining to these Christians... How the Spirit has come to live within them. If you're a Christian this morning, God the Holy Spirit has come to live within you. And he has been spelling out in this chapter, uh, up to where our study is beginning, that when the Holy Spirit lives within someone, we've got a new life. Uh, When the Holy Spirit lives within you, you're free from sin and death. When the Holy Spirit lives within you, uh, he gives you the strength to live for God and he's changing you. And the main work of the Holy Spirit, that Paul is saying in Romans 8, is... That when the Holy Spirit is in you, he assures you, he helps you to see that you really are a follower of the Lord Jesus. And in this particular section, where we're going to pick up today in our study of of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is saying that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the Christian is is to, to make us secure in our hope for the future. And that's our theme this morning, hope for the future. So Paul's doing in this paragraph that we're looking today, he is saying that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit secures our future. Okay? Now if you look at the look at the, the, the words that we're examining this morning, verse eighteen, it starts with the word for. When you come across the word for in the book of Romans, well I suppose like in any passage it's a little word that's it's, it's, it's like a hook, and it's hooking you on to the previous, uh, the previous words that the Apostle Paul has just been speaking about. Just look back at the previous section, verse 12 to 17, trying to get the setting of all of this. He said that if you're a Christian, uh, you're a child of God, you're an heir of great riches, and he says that in the future, he said one of the things you'll know that if you're a Christian, one of the ways you'll know that 
is that there will be times in your life that you'll suffer because you are a Christian. That's what Paul's been speaking about in the last paragraph. He's saying, one of the ways you know you're a Christian is that at times people might make fun of you at school because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You might have difficulties in your work or in your family and you suffer or you take flack because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing now in our paragraph today is because he's mentioned suffering uh, and he doesn't want the Christians to be confused about suffering doesn't want them to be disturbed about it he picks up this theme and he expands it a little bit and the theme of this section is the hope of glory or hope for the future okay that's the big thing of this paragraph it's telling you if you're a follower of Jesus you've got hope for the future okay Now, there are three things that Paul is basically outlining for us here in this paragraph as we think of what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has hope for the future. Three things we need to notice. First of all, you need to know and to remember that the Christian lives in a world of suffering. If you don't get this in your life, actually you're going to have a very difficult life. The Christian lives in a world of suffering. Look what it says. Paul says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. And when Paul uses the word suffering, it's like a a big catch-all term. He is uh, not using it in a narrow way, but he's using it in in a way that gathers up so many of the experiences of life. Getting sick. Feeling pain. Being disappointed, finding that we're so frustrated with circumstances, disease, war, famine. Thinking of all of those sufferings that we come across in the world. He's also thinking of the, of the sufferings or the trouble that a Christian faces just because they're a Christian. Um, you know what that's like. You've been ignored. People have made fun of you. In some parts of the world, Christians are persecuted. Uh, Paul's speaking about all of those things, the sufferings of this present time. He's also speaking of the sufferings that go on inside a Christian. One of the things that you face as a Christian isn't that that you get a bit fed up with yourself, don't you? That you long to be different. Uh, And that's because we've got sin still within us. Uh, And we've got this heartache of longing to be who God wants us to be, but we've got this battle with sin. So that's all involved when Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. So the big thing that Paul is saying to Christians and us today is, if you're a follower of Jesus, that doesn't make you immune from suffering. We live in a world of suffering, and suffering comes into our lives. Just in case you've forgotten, you're not in heaven yet. It's lovely out there and it's beautiful, but I have to remind you that you're not in heaven yet. Paul says, in this world, we face a world of sufferings. When you become a Christian, God doesn't put you in bubble wrap and say, now, everything's going to be nice now. And everything will be rosy and fine. Uh, Look at verse 23. Paul emphasizes this in slightly different ways in this paragraph. He says in verse 23, I read it all, not only the creation, I'll explain a little little bit more of this later, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We ourselves groan inwardly. He's talking about the experience of a man or woman or a boy or girl who's a follower of Jesus Christ. So, you need to know that. Um, and I've come across Christians in my, in my life, people who profess to be Christians, and they bail out or they jump ship in following Jesus Christ because some suffering or some difficulty comes into their lives and they think, how odd this is. I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm suffering. The Bible is making it abundantly clear that the reality for the Christian is we live in a world of suffering. And the experience of our lives will be groaning inwardly. So, 
That doesn't sound like very good news for a start off, but it's something we need to get in our lives. We live in a world of suffering. And what Paul is doing in this paragraph is, he's not simply saying, if you're a Christian, don't be surprised that you suffer in life, because it's a broken world. But what Paul does in this paragraph is he puts our suffering into a bigger picture of suffering. Uh, What he's doing in this paragraph is saying that the sufferings that we experience in life, the troubles that we experience in life, are part of a bigger picture, a bigger trauma. Uh, There's a bigger story going on in our world than in ourselves. Look at verse 21. Paul says, The creation itself will be set free from what? From its bondage to decay. So, our present world is under bondage, it's imprisoned to decay. Or verse 22, he says there, the whole creation has been groaning together. Now, what does Paul mean by that? You look out in the world out there this morning, it looks so beautiful. Well, it is beautiful, but it's not as beautiful as God made it in the very beginning. Uh, The Bible tells us that all of this world whether it's animate objects or inanimate objects, the land, the sea, plant life, animal life, the atmosphere, space, the whole universe is, is pervaded by a brokenness. There's brokenness in everything. Uh, look what he says actually in verse 20. He speaks there in verse 20 of the created order. Look at the little phrase. He says the created order is subjected to futility. That's God's created world, and he says it is subjected to futility. And the word futility there means a a uselessness, an aimlessness, something that's not able to reach its potential. So do you see the big picture? What, What Paul's saying here is that there's not just something wrong with us. He's saying that there's something wrong with the world that we live in. It's beautiful, but it's broken. So the suffering that we face is because we live in a broken world. And I can't emphasize that enough that we grasp that. If we don't grasp that, we will struggle in life over and over. We are broken people living in a broken world. Now that wasn't the way God made it. Sure it wasn't. You remember what it says in Genesis, after every stage of creation, and God saw that and said that it was good. Everything he made was good. Uh, But something happened to creation. Uh, Something happened to creation, and we know what happened to creation. Because of sin, creation was marred. And so all of creation is now subject to decay. If uh, the kitchen wasn't cleaned up by the helpers later on, and the food was left around, if you come back next week, you'll see it'll have decayed. Um, You plant flowers in the garden, they grow for a little while, then they wither and die and decay. That's not the way God made the world. Uh, the world now is in bondage to decay. But look at what Paul says again in verse 20. That's the world we live in. It's, in, it's captured in this state of, of decomposing and dying. But look what Paul says. He says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, do you get that? The creation was subjected to futility. The creation isn't what it it longs to be, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And what Paul's saying there is actually, when God made creation, it was perfect. There was no designer fault within it. When God made, uh, made the world at the beginning, it wasn't made to break down. It was perfect. But what he is telling us here, that after the fall, God did something to creation. It says, uh, it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the someone that did something to creation was God. God had warned Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree... Uh, the, the, the tree that you're forbidden to eat from, there will be death. So, the brokenness of our world is not some sort of evolutionary fluke, as some people would tell us. It's an act of God. God did something to creation after the fall. 
And he did that because of the rebellion of man. Okay, so there's sickness and there's suffering in the world because God did something to creation. This is a really important point, actually. Too many Christians believe just man scuppered things and everything broke. Well, that's putting God out of the picture, actually. Man scuppered things in his fall and God then did something. He subjected creation to futility. He stamped a brokenness on his world. Now, that sometimes makes, makes a response in people and saying, well, you know, God, that's not very fair. And people get a wee bit uppity with God when they read a verse like that in the Bible. Well, is it, not, is it, is it an unfair thing to do that God would subject his created order to futility after the fall? Is that an unfair thing of God? Is that an unwise thing for God to do to stamp his perfect world with brokenness now? Well, if you think of the scenario of a parent, it's none of these children here in this uh, illustration, but if you think of a, of a parent with an unruly, rebellious child, and you were watching that parent, and you watched the, the little child take a psycho every moment of the day on a strop, and mummy or daddy just to stand in the background and twiddle their thumbs and never say boo about it. This little spoiled brat spoiling uh, family harmony, fracturing relationships in the home, just an utter ugly defiance of its parental rule. Now, would you say it would be a good parent just to stand in the background as if nothing was happening? Well, we wouldn't, wouldn't we? We would actually say the parent wasn't very loving, letting the little brat keep on doing what he'd been doing. Um, a good parent would step in and would put sanctions in place. You're grounded. Um, your privileges are removed so that the child could see its folly. And that's what God did. In his love and in his mercy, he, he subjected his world to frustration to stop us. Because we're the delinquent child. We're the rebel. And all of the breakages that we see in the world are God's loving mercy. It's part of the fall, part of the consequences of the fall, but it's also the mercy of God. We should look at the world in all its brokenness and we should say, that's what sin did to the world. Isn't that what Jesus did? When he came to Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem, when he came to the graveside of his friend Lazarus and wept, he wept at the ruin of God's good and beautiful world that it was subjected to futility. And so we should look at the brokenness of our world, whatever form it comes in, and we should hear the message screaming at us. This is what sin does. So the brokenness of our world is not to chase us from God, as some people argue. Well, I saw all this brokenness in the world. I saw all this suffering and I concluded there couldn't be a God. It's actually the direct opposite. Why God has designed now that he stamped brokenness on his world is to make us see our rebellion and make us flee to God. Paul speaks about the sufferings of our present time. You notice that? It's a momentary suffering. It's just for now. So that's the first big thing that Paul is speaking about here in this chapter. Um, We've got to get into, the, into our heads that we live in a world of suffering. That's the reality. And we need the reality check of that at times, actually, in our lives. Now, don't worry, the news gets better. <laughs> it gets better. Um, because the second thing that Paul's showing us in this paragraph is that the Christian lives destined for glory. This is better, isn't it? The Christian lives destined for glory. You see, uh, if I just stopped after 
after a point one, some of you would go away and say, well, there you are. The minister said, we live in a suffering world. Just go away and suck it up. And get on with it. Well, that would be a horrible thing to do, actually. And that certainly wouldn't be the way God wants us to live. No, the reason why Paul sets this scene of suffering is that he wants us to see suffering in a new light. Verse 18 again. It's really the headline, actually, of this paragraph. Look at it again. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, here it comes, you ready for this? Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You've got to let that sink in. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think better actually, unto us or into us. Now what does Paul mean by that? Well what does he mean firstly by the glory? Glory is one of those Bible words. We even use it, don't we? Say, so we look at, you looked out there this morning and you said, isn't that glorious? What did, that, what did you mean by that? Well, the word glory in the Bible really comes from a word that means weighty. Uh, something that's of weight, something that's of significance, something that is splendid, or if you looked out that window, it's something actually of head-turning majesty. That's what glory means in the Bible. Something of just infinite weight or worthiness. So what Paul's saying is, yes, we live in a world of suffering, we face suffering, it's real and it's painful, but there's a glory beyond, that is beyond our imagining. So you get what he's saying here? He's saying there'll be times in your life that you'll be faced full on with suffering. And it feels as if it's beyond our endurance. But what Paul's saying in this here is so important for Mr. Grass. He's saying that's not the final scene for you, Christian. The final scene of our lives is not the brokenness. The final scene of our lives is the glory beyond. Now, you could be confused about this and get this the wrong way around as well. So let's go really carefully here. Paul's not saying in this verse, verse 18 here, that heaven is so great that the sufferings that we face in this world will be pale in comparison. He's actually not saying that here. He's saying something much more wonderful than that. Uh, when I go into schools to take assembly, I always like to go into, went into school a wee bit earlier, and I love to walk up the corridor to the assembly hall where I speak to the children, and it's like most schools, the hallway is just filled with the artwork of the children. Some of it is absolutely wonderful. Some of it is pretty wet, but some of it is really wonderful. It's usually got the name McCulloch under it if it's not the best. <laughs> but, sorry, Gertie and John. <laughs> but there's some that's absolutely tremendous. Well, you can imagine then if I walked in from the corridor into the assembly hall and looked up at the ceiling and Michelangelo had come back again to life and had painted the ceiling of the assembly hall. Well, the children's work would be pale in comparison to what Michelangelo had done on the ceiling of the assembly hall. That's not actually what Paul's saying in this passage. That's not the comparison that he's making. It will be true that when we get to heaven, we will go, wow, isn't it breathtaking? Many of you did a wow this morning when you looked out there. Well, that's nothing actually to what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ comes back. What's Paul getting at here? Well, what he's getting at is not what's going to be going on around us. What Paul is emphasizing for the Christian is what will happen, here it comes, to us. Verse 18, the end of it should read really, what is to be revealed unto us and or into us. Now, let's take this a little slowly because this is just life changing. So Paul's point is here that when the Christian gets to heaven, it's not that we will be spectators of something glorious, the way we are now looking out at that, we're spectators of the glory or the weightiness of that. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's point is much, much bigger. Look at verse 19, it helps explain it a little bit. 
It says in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing. What for? Look what it says. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now you get that. that Paul puts it in very graphic language actually when he uses that little word <coughs> eager longing. It's, a, it's got a picture language behind it. It's basically Paul imagining that the created world is like a human being and he's imagining the created world on its tiptoes. You know when you wear you, when you, if, well if you were all standing looking out that window this morning when I come down I'm not a particular tall chap but some of you bigger chaps were standing there. I would have to stand on my tiptoes and crane my neck to get a glimpse and that's the picture that the Apostle Paul has here. He pictures creation as people. And the creation is standing on its tiptoes, craning its necks to see something. What, are they craning? what is it craning its neck to see? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you get what, what creation is on its tiptoes? The created world... The angels, every part of creation, Paul says, is on its tiptoes, waiting for the renewal of everything, but especially to see the change that there's going to be in, in the Christians, in the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you the bad news here. Uh, you don't look very glorious this morning. Um, in fact, I'm sorry to tell you that some of you look less glorious than the last time I saw you. Uh, and you're saying it actually goes two ways, David. Um, all we can see now in each other's lives is the suffering, is the pain, the brokenness that's all around us. But Paul is saying that's not the end. There's going to be a glorious transformation. Every struggle removed, every heartache wiped away. And the sons and the daughters of God, glorious. Not just believers, look at verse 21. It says there, for creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection are such a powerful thing that there's going to be a total and utter transformation of you and of all of God's world. That's the destiny of you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That in heaven the angels be on their tiptoes and that it said, look what's happened to him. Look what's happened to her. Look what the gospel and what has, has utterly trans, transformed their lives. It's as if Paul imagines the created order nudging each other. And they're saying, look what God did to David. Look what God did to Harry. Look what God did to Les. Look at how God changed them. And we're to see in that the wonder and the power of the gospel. So we live in a broken world, but we remember we are destined for a glorious change. That even the angels will be craning their necks and going, wow. That brings us thoroughly and finally to the practical outworking. The Christian lives in light of this hope. Now you see, when we're faced with suffering, people have different responses. When we're faced with the, bro the brokenness of our lives, some people get very angry. Think of one lady I know. Uh, she lost her son in a sporting accident um, 60 years ago. And all the days that I knew her, she was the most broken, bitter, unpleasant woman that you could have ever met. That's what her brokenness did in her life because she responded wrongly to it. Some people respond to brokenness and suffering by becoming bitter and angry. Other people like to try and blank out suffering and brokenness, just pretend it doesn't happen, have another retail fix. 
but a more retail therapy. Watch some more television. I remember I visited a man um, 20 years ago now, and uh, he was an elderly gentleman. He wasn't confined to his house. He'd get out in his car, but his whole life he spent, it was videos in those days, watching television. I can remember he had a cupboard built in his living room, six foot by three foot cupboard. And he said to me, I would love, love you to see what I've collected. And it was filled with videos. And every day he sat and he watched one film after another. That's how he blanked out the trouble in his life. But look what Paul says about how the Christian is to live. Verse 24. Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. So Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, you live completely differently because you've got this hope of glory. Now, hope in the Bible, remember, it's not like our, how we would use hope. Hope in the Bible is a certain day. And Paul's saying here, when you became a Christian, it wasn't just that you got your sins forgiven. When I, became, when I was converted when I was 15, I thought that was the whole deal. I got my sins forgiven. That was wonderful. It wasn't even the beginning of it, actually. There's so much more. And what Paul is emphasizing in, these, in, these, uh, in this paragraph really is that when you became a Christian, the whole deal was that you were saved not just in your soul, but you were saved in your body. And you'll have a glorious body that the very angels will marvel at. You can't see it. But we live with that sure and certain hope. Because God has said it in his word. We're going to be glorious. So how are we going to live in the light of this truth? We live in a broken world, but it's not the end. Well, there, there are several practical things here for our lives. And let this be, way, be the way by application of just this great paragraph. How are we to live in a broken world where we face suffering when we're engulfed by pain, how we live in light of what's yet to come. Well, we're to live realistically. And what I mean by that is that we are to live realizing, as I said at the very start, that this isn't heaven. You've got to get that. And even understand that actually as, as young people as well. Uh, too many Christians that I've, I've come across in life that they expect life to be easy. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus Christ. Surely life will be easy. No. We live in a broken world. Our sin pulled down the judgment of God. That's the world we live in now. And we need to have that realism. If you think life's going to be easy for you, and a life of comfort the whole way home, you're not understanding the scripture. This isn't paradise. This isn't the forever bit yet. Um, and if you don't get that, you'll be very, very frustrated. Not just at the physical sufferings that you can face at times, but if you think that this is now the glorious bit, you'll never actually be able to live with your fellow Christians. Many squabbles happen between Christians because they think that this world should be perfect now. The bottom line is actually, as Christians, very often we expect too much of our fellow Christian. Your fellow Christians in your church at Carrick are not going to be glorious the way they will be in heaven now. They are broken. You're broken. You're not the people that you will be. And we need that realism. And the marriage counseling that I've had to give over the last 20 years to men and women is because they went into a marriage all lovey-dovey, thinking it was going to be wonderful, and then all of a sudden they realized they were living in the same house as another sinner. And they expected far too much. They expected it to be paradise. Hello, it is not paradise. No marriage, no church family, because this isn't heaven. Do you, do you get that? That is so important. If you don't get that, you will be frustrated with your minister, 
And if your minister doesn't get it, and this minister doesn't get it, we will be utterly frustrated with our people. Because this isn't heaven. And your minister is broken. This minister is broken. And the people of God are still broken. Some of the breakages are easy to see. They're physical things. But a lot of them are much deeper and much more hidden. So if you get this paragraph, you live much more realistically. Not saying that we don't expect our brothers and sisters to be growing in grace. Not saying that. But we will live with the realism. Just now, this is still the broken, suffering world. You don't get that. You're in trouble. You're going to know yourself. And you are going to torture everybody else. So get it. Okay? So we live realistically. The second thing. This isn't a word, but I'll say it anyway. We're to live thinkingly. Okay? Uh, just made up a new word, thinking. Well, you're to think. Uh, the world we live in doesn't think. You young people, you've got to learn to think. Okay? You've got so many gadgets and gizmos that you've always got your head stuck in. And one of the problems with those, all those is they don't help you to think. Okay? Open a book every now and then, it'll help you to think. Uh, leave the Game Boy aside. Leave the Xbox aside. And read a book. It'll help you to think. Uh, we need to think. That's what Paul is doing in, in, chapter, in chapter 8, isn't he? Look what he says in verse 18. As I said, it's the headline sentence. Paul says, I consider. And the word that he uses there for consider is a really important word. It was a, Well, it wouldn't have been a word that I would have used in those days. That I can't add up to anything beyond 10. I'm, I'm sniggered after that. It was an accounting word. And uh, it was... It was used for jotting things down and accurately topping it all up, putting it all together. Right? It was a really detailed examination going on. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, I consider. He's thinking. And that's what we have to do. We've got to be thinking. I, I sometimes meet people who aren't yet Christians uh, and they and they said to me, well, you know, I've got all of these problems, I've got all of these issues about the gospel, about the world, why is it so, is it such a mess? And I meet them ten years later, and they're still asking the same questions. They haven't done any thinking. They've just gone over the question. And that can actually spill over into the Christian's life. We can have all these questions, and uh, instead of just keeping asking the question, we should go and do some thinking. Ponder it. Turn over the pages of our Bibles and pray and think. Uh, when we look at the broken world, we should think how holy God is that he wouldn't allow this world just to rumble on. He would, he would stamp a brokenness on it. We should be thinking when we, see, when we see fractures, whether in relationships or people's lives, how horrible sin is that it would do that to God's creation. So, when we're, when we're considering the, the brokenness of our worlds, we're to be realistic. We're to be thinking people. But then also, and lastly, we're to be expectant people. Look at verse 22. Look how Paul puts it together. He says in verse 22, The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Or verse 23, he says, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Now imagine you walk into a hospital. Um, doesn't usually happen. I think I've maybe heard this maybe once or twice. But you walk into a hospital and you hear a woman crying. You hear a woman groaning. Um, you can't make any conclusion about her unless you check what ward it's coming from. Yes, you know where I'm going with this illustration. Um, if it's coming from the surgical ward and you hear a woman crying and groaning, you can conclude, well, there's great sorrow, there's great pain, perhaps even death. Uh, but if it's the delivery suites, you know that cry of pain has a different emphasis. It's the pain of expectation and it's the prospect of joy. 
And that's how the Apostle Paul says the Christian lives their lives. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. There's a realization in that that it's painful, but the tears that trickle down our face, they're actually telling us something. They're telling us that something better is coming. Every morning when you lift your bottle of medication and pour out your pills for the day, actually, and drop them into the little counter of your elderly friend or your own that you're looking after, every drop is saying, this is painful, but there's something better coming. We groan with eager expectation. And our pain and our suffering are saying to us, you're not yet home. And they should make us love Jesus Christ even more for the great salvation that he's given to us. So when we look at the broken world, God's aim isn't for us to be overwhelmed by suffering. But his aim is that we'll be overwhelmed with his love. That he would rescue us, body and soul. And that our lives would be lived more and more for him. Uh, caught a glimpse of a television program a few weeks back and it was one of those uh, you know those sort of home new home type program you know the ones you watch you watch about 30 seconds of them and you're bored silly um, well I am anyway it's, uh, uh, and I watched one recently the 30 second bit of it and there was a couple in there well it looks like they're just about retired and they'd gone to this new house I can't remember what it looked like now but I noted what they said. They said as they showed the, the TV personality through their house, they said one to another, this is all we've ever dreamt of. That was a stage actually, I was nearly getting the TV to throw it out the window uh, and starting to shout, this isn't what you've dreamt of. Do you find people that this is all I've ever dreamt of? I've got a new iPhone. This is all I've ever dreamt of. A man gets a wife. This is all I ever dreamt of. Go on a holiday. This is all I ever dreamt of. And I, I think, is that what you're satisfied with? A house? A phone? I'm screaming at the television by this stage. You were made for something bigger. You weren't made to be satisfied with things. We were made... To be satisfied with Jesus Christ and heaven. See, the Christian life is very different. It's when we see Jesus Christ and know him as our saviour, we say, this is all I ever dreamt of. But even then, there's more that will surpass all of that when we see him in glory. Then we'll say, actually, this is all I ever dreamt of. I see him, and I'm renewed, body and soul. So what Paul's doing, us, doing for us here is saying to us, actually, you're not in heaven yet, but just you wait. It will be so glorious, and you will be filled with glory. So that's your hope for the future. But maybe you're saying, well, that's all very well to hope for the future. What about now? Oh, we'll find that out this afternoon. Right. So we'll pray again. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, you know that often in our lives uh, we feel the brokenness of our world. feel it in our bodies. We need to look in the mirror. We feel it, Lord, of the passing of the years, the frailty of our frame, the weakness of our minds and our emotions. We look around in the world's we see war and famine and hurricane and so-called natural disaster. And it's all so broken. Father, thank you that you've given us your word to help us understand that this brokenness is your stamp. To help us see the horror of sin. 
and to help us see the love of God in Jesus Christ. Oh Father, will you help us to live our lives not thinking that this is all there is, but to live our lives thinking of the glory that awaits. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the followers of Jesus Christ and this little church family as they would journey on together, that they would help one another in their brokenness, and that they would help one another to see that this suffering is just for the present time. And then Jesus will come in all his glory, in all his majesty. And these men and women, whose lives were so broken, will be so glorious, so splendid, that we would be tempted, if it was now, to fall at their feet and worship them. Oh, thank you, mighty God, that the gospel of your Son is so powerful that it not only forgives us from our sins, not only saves these souls, but will one day raise up a body oh, so transformed and like the transformed body of Jesus Christ. So will you help us, Father, to live with an eye for what is yet to come. And thank you that because the Holy Spirit lives within us, this future is guaranteed. No chance of it breaking down, but that we have this deposit set within us, the Spirit of God himself. And so, Lord, will you help us to live not fearful of the future, but knowing the glory that is yet to come. Father, thank you that the Holy Spirit, that he lives within each man, woman, boy and girl, born again of your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that we know his grace and strength to journey on in this broken world with realism and with expectation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.